I'm Steve Stein and you're listening to Inside Asia. Let me ask you something. How happy are you with your job or your profession? Depending on the day, the week, or the deadline, your answer might fluctuate. We live in an always-on world where workplace demands can take precedence over all things. It's exciting, no doubt, but what toll is it taking on your life, your health, your family, or your friendships? I'm not here to start a revolution or advocate for corporate mass defection. The workplace is a central part of living. More than income, corporate professions have the power and potential to add meaning and purpose. In today's world of technology and change, some of us are fortunate enough to find ourselves wrapped up in cutting-edge endeavors or in association with wildly creative and innovative colleagues. Most, however, are feeling consumed and overwhelmed and left wondering at the end of the day what, if anything, has really been accomplished. Looking back over the long arc of your professional career, where do you stand? Has it delivered all that it promised? Now look ahead. Depending on where you are in your career, at the outset, it can strike you as a long and torturous climb or for more senior executives, the looming up of the proverbial finish line. Whether at the beginning or the end of your professional journey, it may be time for that hard conversation, that existential debate with yourself that starts with, what does it all mean? My guest this week had her own epiphanous moment when a close friend and a work colleague unexpectedly took her own life. That set in motion a series of questions about life and the world of work that resulted in a book called Future Proof, Reinventing Work in an Age of Acceleration. Diana Wu is a longtime resident of Hong Kong, a former executive at the Financial Times, and an all-around insightful human being. In the spirit of the virtual workplace and testimony to the rise of the digital nomad, I caught up with her via Skype from a remote villa in Bali. We started our conversation by exploring how there's plenty of information and advice out there regarding traditional late careers and retirement, but very little to help people understand what it takes to make a transition from a traditional to a gig profession. There's quite a lot in terms of how you can save more money and and how you can kind of survive the uh, years after you retire, either willingly or unwillingly. But there's not a lot about how you can have a fulfilling life, how you can work. And I think that there's been a dip. There is an opportunity. Um, at, at some point, there was a retirement age and people did go out and retire and, you know, and they they didn't work at all. But now I think that the future of work with the gig economy, with um, virtual collaboration from anywhere, including Bali or Hong Kong or New York, uh, you really can keep plugged in. And I think that the organizations now are waking up to the fact that they can take pieces of wisdom from people who still want to work and craft better outcomes and even a better culture within the workplace. Do, do you think corporations are responding to this or are they just paying lip service to it? Um I know what you think because we've had this conversation before. Uh, I I do think that they're struggling to figure out the broader picture of their workers. So I don't think that they're very concerned about um, senior workers. I think they're they're concerned about how um, about underfunded pensions. They're concerned about that transition. Um, in some cases, they're concerned that. Uh, they need to make more room for younger workers. And so the concern goes the other way. Um, But I do think that they now are looking at opportunities to engage outside consultants or um, people with specific skills of all ages and of all types. So in that sense, it's part of a broader trend. I don't think that they're trying to solve 
um, for retirement. Uh, but I do think that they're looking at it as an opportunity, which is, I think, a much more positive way to consider it both at the individual level as well as the organizational level. I just find it interesting, Diana, that you know, at, at within six, six, seven, eight years since this whole digital disruption movement occurred, it's not as if organizations didn't have other issues to deal with, uh, whether it was turnover, organizational redesign, uh, <laughs> fundamentally rethinking business models, and now this. I just, it's almost like corporations are not to be too sympathetic or empathetic with them, but it's almost like they can't get a break. Well, I mean, I think that's just the dynamic nature of business. And everybody looks back maybe and says, oh, you know, the day of the uh, widget making, it just seems so simple. But that's part of the the reality for people and organizations and governments. It's far more interconnected far more complex. And, and so that's the skill that people as individuals have to learn, um, that that agility in the face of complexity, as well as corporations. So, And I do think that people who have been in business for a while and weathered many different storms and maybe traveled around the world and interacted with many different cultures have a leg up. Well, let, let's come. Let's come back to this because I want to. I want to get to the nexus uh, of your book. Uh, wh- what happened? And tell us a little bit about where you were and what stage in your life when you came across this subject, uh, embraced it, and went on to write it. So I think that the the kind of turning point for me. Um, I know that you've heard my TED talk, which talks about my. Um, one of my best friends from college, the, the person uh, with whom I was going to pursue world domination, uh, she ended up taking her own life. And so that was a turning point where, you know, my focus on work and, in fact, her and my, you know, talking about all the great things we were going to do was um, really thrown up against a brick wall and, and uh, fell smashing to the pavement. Um, But still, I think that it was uh, also just continuing to work and continuing to realize that um, that I was sacrificing quite a lot of the things that I loved in life. Um, And it was really just to to make the operation run efficiently. And I guess at some point uh, that just didn't seem like it was good enough. So I. I really did think, like, what? I, it was sort of right after a budget meeting or something and thinking about, like, this is what we could do to really make um, next year great and to grow the business and be really strategic about it. And I thought, gosh, what if I did this in my own life? And, I, I mean, maybe some people do, but I sure didn't. What if I sat down and said, what if I invested or what would I have to invest to make sure that my family life was great. Like, is that going to grow next year? Or mm. are my kids just going to grow because that's what they do? <laughs> mm. um, and that was really the turning point, thinking, uh, oh, you know, I need to do something differently. And, and of course, I guess it would, like you, Steve, ask people all the time, you know, how do you do this? How do you do that? And, and that was really the turning point when I thought, I'm going to invest in my life. I'm not just going to invest in my next job. Yeah, and that that's um, it. Sounds to me so op- obviously a blindsided uh, moment and a wake up call, uh, and nothing like that to have us hold up the mirror and reflect on our own lives. Plus, you live in Hong Kong, and there's probably not a busier, more 
uh, rapidly engaged city on earth. I mean, there's, there's movement and activity and doing everywhere. And it just sometimes feels like it's all too much. So I suspect that this is this is your moment, your, your great inflection point. Well, I don't think, you know, I certainly have made my own personal journey. And um, Steve, as you know, I went to a more of a portfolio career. But before that, um, really, the other part of it was doing the Financial Times non-executive directors program, which is something that I founded uh, for Financial Times here. And I was surrounded by amazing, inspiring people who are all thinking, I think by and large, that the value that drives them is giving back. They were all training to be more effective board directors that were, they were either on boards or, um, or going on to them or planning to go into them. And they also were in this point where, you know, they had totally uh, rocked in their career and yet they were looking out thinking, what's next? And when I saw all those people, like way smarter than me, thinking that and asking me, you know, what do I do? I thought, wow, this there's something here. It's sort of (laughs) there's something in the air that seems to be less about my own personal midlife crisis and much more about uh, where things are heading. And that's when I started doing more research and, you know, into statistics and that kind of thing. What, that what it, bore out that, that, in fact, people were feeling that way. What, and, and so as you dug in and you started to look around, you, you had conversations with a variety of people. What, what were some of the early learnings? What, what did you discover? The surprise to me, because I was thinking about it in terms of more like work-life integration and, and building a life you know, uh, having a job in the context of a life as opposed to um, having a life in the context of work. Mm. And so I thought I'd find people who had found the, you know, secret sauce for that. And I found something totally different. Uh, Everybody that I talked to that had found a good balance was extremely ambitious. And they had shifted from, I played by the rules and I crushed it, to now I'm going to play by my own rules and I'm going to crush it. Is it always those people who crushed it? Or are there simply people who live in uh, these, these, these times of quiet desperation, uh, in soul-sucking environments, and for whatever reason, responsibility, <laughs> finance, whatnot, they decide not to move, but when they do move, they find the joy? Or are those just curmudgeons? No matter what, they're going to be that way. Well, no, I, I mean, I think that um, if you ask people enough questions, then, you know, that they can come to realize that uh, that new avenues are possible. But lots of people, I think, are feeling quite trapped. I mean, if you look at, you know, employee engagement, it's it's never been much above 15 percent globally. And so companies spend a huge amount of time thinking, why does people? Why do people? You know, not like work. Uh, why are they not giving their best? And I think it does have to do with the fact that uh, they're that people are afraid and they um, they don't trust their employers. Uh, and yet, there's not really 
a vision of what else is possible. And so talking to people who seem to be, uh, you know, living life on their own terms and really not settling was what I hoped to do, just to paint a vision of what was possible so people living lives of quiet desperation might look up and say, I could do that. It's not that big a deal. So your book profiles individuals who've made the leap, who've made these decisions, found the way through, and are now living interesting, fulfilling lives. Is that the idea, to inspire people to make the move or or to simply give hope? Uh, What was the intent of the book? Yeah, I think that the um, idea, and when you say sort of make the leap, uh, I don't think of it as a, a leap between, you know, uh, say, working and not working or whatever it is. I think that there are small things that people can do to start crafting a more agile life. And that I think that those small steps give people um, a sense of hope. And yes, of course, I would love to give people a sense of hope, but hope without action is really um <clears throat> somewhat meaningless. So there are a lot of small things that I saw people do and that I think people can do to give them a sense of opportunity, to take small opportunities. Um, Because a lot of them are sort of at the top of the cliff looking down and thinking, there's no stairway and I'm not going to jump. And so really it it was to talk about small ways that people can change their lives to be ready for the future of their own work. So, you know, just, just let's, let's go back to what we were just saying there, because I think it's, it's interesting about this, what, where people are in their lives, what they're thinking. I guess one of the questions I have, Diane, is, is that, you know, are things, has this always been the case? Is it just that throughout modern history, as people get about their lives, engage in the world, have jobs, uh, you know, they go and they, they feel that there's this moment where something isn't right? There's the classic book. Babbitt, you know, which is written during the 1950s about, you know, a, a man who, who plays all the right moves and uh, is the corporate guy. But then as the book progresses, he starts to lose hope and, start, and starts to question everything. And it's this opening. So I, I know that there are themes that have occurred through time, but for some reason, it feels different now. And I wonder if it's not the convergence of issues, uh, uncertainty in geopolitics, uh, concern about climate change. Uh, you know, general global or societal angst, which is contributing to people's ideas about what's meaningful, uh, what should I be doing, how should I be engaging in the world. Are these things that you think are uniquely unique to our times, or do you believe these are themes that have always existed? I think that the, the desire for people to shift from success to significance has been you know, part of our times, part of our modern times. I mean, when retirement was invented, I think that the um, the average lifespan was 47 and the retirement age was 65. So it was never supposed to actually happen, mm-hmm. um, at least in terms of the payout. But this time feels different. And I think that it's because people are living longer. So, you know, the, the sort of learn and then earn and then burn uh, linear narrative that we lived by is no longer really relevant because I don't think people have the stamina necessarily to work solidly for 60 years. Um, The world is different because 
we don't have the longevity in the corporate space that we used to. Everything is about disruption. Uh, and companies are now, I think the average lifespan at the S&P is 12 years. So you couldn't even live and work for the same company for 40 years because the company won't be in existence. Mm. Um, and then certainly, yes, globalization uh, has had real effects, I think, positive and negative, uh, but it d certainly does lend a sense of uncertainty uh, between the, the technology changes, the globalization, and really just the pace of change. That seems to be the biggest thing to me. Um, things are changing all the time, and we need to find a way to live in that new world. Um, and And I think that there's great opportunity. I think that there's been a lot of negativity, but my own personal experience and those of others that I talked to were really that, you know, globalization means you can work from anywhere. And there are really great opportunities. And the unemployment rate in the U.S. is down. So, you know, some of those things have, uh, and certainly in Hong Kong, it's like 2.8%. So some of those situations uh, kind of converge to, to make this a unique moment in time. I'm Steve Stein, and this is Inside Asia. My guest this episode is Diana Wu, author, speaker, and workplace futurist. More in a moment. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com. I'm Steve Stein, and this is Inside Asia. You're listening to my conversation with Diana Wu, author of Future Proof, Reinventing Work in the Age of Acceleration. Her book is a tour de force in understanding and addressing the changing world of work facing white-collar workers and professionals. Diana addresses some of the many ways people tackle workplace demands and how others opt for more dynamic, less myopic professional paths. She also notes how the gig economy is throwing up new possibilities allowing smart, risk-ready individuals to create livelihoods with a new twist. There's been a lot of... Um conversation about, you know, the side hustle or uh, doing multiple gigs and the portfolio career for many people, um, it just works. It provides the flexibility uh, for people who want and need to have uh, caregiving in their lives or now want to pursue their art for at the same time they're pursuing their corporate career. Um, so I think that that certainly I don't think that that's super new, but I think that, that that's something that people do much more often. And there's more uh, embracing. So one of the people in the book, uh, Brian Tang, he was really passionate about the um, maker movement for kids. And he started the, um, the Young Makers and Change Makers with his kids, and it really focused on providing access. And it's to... Uh, basically give access to the maker movement um, and and sort of the idea of tech and making things and uh, and hackathons 
to young people in Hong Kong. Mm. And he did that uh, on the side, but is now, you know, years later, um, the founding head of the Hong Kong U Law Department's um, multidisciplinary program mm. that covers regulation tech and legal tech and what and a lot of it is to do with his the the things that he learned and the network that he made through his technology project which was you know really a volunteer project very meaningful he had some uh young high school girls go to silicon valley to win the google prize so it was by no means a you know a small um undertaking but uh, but it it massively transformed the opportunities that he could pursue professionally as well. Diane, are people looking for autonomy? Are they looking for fulfillment? Uh, when are they looking for just greater flexibility or all the above? W- what are the key motivations for people to, after running the corporate gauntlet for thirty years, saying it's time to do something else? It's it's this is the moment. Are are people moved by different? opportunities or or internal callings uh, or do you see any patterning in other words in terms of the research you've done I think that a lot of people were motivated by growth and there's a tendency to slow down uh, I think there's not as much of a place in corporate culture for the for wisdom really it, there's a lot of uh, opportunity for execution and the longer you do something the better you get at it the more you get paid and the higher you rise and I think a lot of folks just looked around and thought I'm not really learning anymore and I got a lot more time to explore and a lot of interest so um, so growth was a huge aspect of that um, contribution really feeling like they could make the biggest impact possible Um, I think autonomy because as people get older, I think they certainly feel like they don't want to work in the same ways, but that's a trend that is borne out with millennials as well. That sense of, you know, flexibility, I want to work in the way that I want to work. That's something that quite frankly was not a part of my early career and probably not of yours. I was told to wear a skirt to work because pants weren't appropriate. So, you know, that that was sort of where I started. And now we're talking about, yeah, I really, you know, I feel more productive on the beach. Right. With the wind <laughs> blowing through my hair. Yeah. <laughs> Don't we all? Kind of a new world. Yeah. So and so so it, it, it hits on both sides. The the, the people coming into the market in their twenties and those who are departing it, uh, and it sounds like even midlife crisis uh, in some ways. I, I do suspect for people with families uh, that the who are in their forties or coming through their forties feel the weight of responsibility to earn responsibly before they try to break out or do something different. Have you seen a pattern there? And and in other words, my question is really with a good financial grounding or underpinning it's easier to make these decisions to move on and lead a portfolio life, correct? Well, I think, of course, that, you know, with with good financial capital, but also career capital, it's easier to do that because you feel like if you have proven yourself in the marketplace, you can always go back um, and you know the value that you can provide there. So in that sense, I think, um, you know, I think that that is the, the sort of, earned capital uh, of people who 
may be in their sort of 40s, 50s, 60s. But I see it changing for millennials and mid-career professionals as well because they're smarter about it. They're not thinking that they're just going to continue working. That, that One of the people that I spoke to um, recently who's not actually in the book, he is works for the U.S. Census Bureau, and he said, you know, I, I can't wait. I don't really have the money to, you know, have like, early retirement or portfolio career or whatnot, but I really thought about the number one thing that I wanted to do and it was travel and like travel big. And so he put his apartment up on Airbnb. He had three weeks vacation, which is standard in the US and he took it all at once, which is completely not standard, um, rented his apartment during a huge convention in his town and spent three weeks in New Zealand. And he said, this is great. I'm, I'm making money while I'm on vacation mm. and I'm going to do this every year. Mm. And so, you know, this is the second year. So I don't think it's, like I said before, it's not about fundamentally disrupting your life and becoming mm. something different. It's really about rethinking how to incorporate, uh, you know, work into your life goals. Yeah, just, um, and I and being creative with that. We just had two two young guys over for dinner last night who uh, went fishing in Alaska, uh, commercial fishing, made fifty thousand dollars, and now we're spending the next six months traveling Indonesia. Um, they they've had dabbled in jobs, but they're not ready to commit to careers, and they certainly have issues uh, when it comes to working for the man. I, I suspect this is we're going to see more of this and therefore how creative people get in determining how they make money and how they live their lives and how they can c contribute is going to be rather dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, that the new generation of, of people, to your earlier point, this is a new time. They are really demanding a different way to work. And uh, as one of them said to me once, oh, it's like you're teaching perennials how to be millennials. <laughs> mm. um, I'm not sure if that's really what it is, the perennials being the people who are working, you know, longer into the sunset years. Um, but I do think that there is a huge cultural shift about the way work fits into our life. There's still biases and um, conventions that people have to contend with. I, I, do you feel or have you seen through your conversations and research any evidence of individuals who walk out into the marketplace on their own terms who are all of a sudden seen differently. So within the corporate context, being regional managing director or senior vice president, they were seen with a certain set of eyes, but now they've stepped out, people start to say, ah, yeah, he or she, well, they've, they've kind of lost the plot, or I guess they're moving towards retirement. Are those those types of biases that prevent people from ultimately being successful, do you think? Oh, I think that's huge. And uh, part of it is internal because uh, if you're somebody who is climbing the corporate ladder, it's because you cared, you know, you loved your job, but you, you cared what people thought about you as well, by and large. And most of us have our identities from our jobs. You know, we're an accountant or we work for, uh, you know, Procter & Gamble or there's a huge aspect uh, of who we are that is wrapped up in that. So leaving that and having people look at you in a different way is so uncomfortable for most people that they can't do it. Yes. And I'm, 
I mean, it's so uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. I've actually been in corporate roles and then started companies. And, you know, when you go from being at Time Warner to, you know, being something small startup that nobody's heard about, people don't take your calls. Absolutely. Is that that ego, Diana? Is that just the fact that I've I've grown to uh, feel a certain way about myself because the way the world perceives me? And is it, in fact, an internal issue that my ego is now in the way of me being able to reinvent or re-deliver myself to the marketplace in a way where I feel good about it and other people can see me with new eyes? Well, yeah, I think that there's there's the internal aspect of getting comfortable with who you are outside of whatever's on the business card. Um, but then there is the practical aspect of it. You know, there's you need to think about crafting your new story that is as compelling and communicates what you're trying to do. Um, because the frustration sometimes beyond ego is y- you sure we internalize it and we think we are extremely effective because we can do you know xyz and then and then it's much harder to do things without the um, brand behind you or a process that is you know geared to efficiency it's just it's just harder Hmm. Um, but i think a, a big part of that is focusing on what you are trying to achieve and um and being able to craft a meaningful story about why it's important. And I think that that resonates very well with other people um, that that know you, that want to participate in what you're trying to do in the world. You know, I, you, you've tapped on, on something which is, I know, near and dear to us both, which is story. Um, and, and let's talk about that a little bit. What, what, what does it mean um, in your world in terms of recrafting that story? Why is that important? Is it a matter of reassessing where I've come from, where I am, and where I'm going in order to have a more authentic view of what's possible? Or is it just a matter of, of determining for yourself who I am versus what the world wants me to be or my company expects me to be? Well, I think that there's merit in understanding your story or your, you know, your deeper uh, purpose or your north star for yourself because it helps you make better decisions um it helps you understand the criteria you will make for you know if you're not doing your corporate job what will you do there's unlimited opportunity um hampered by imagination and finances and um maybe a little bit of reality but i think that the story to me is really about what you're trying to do and how you communicate that to other people because that's what lets you do amazing things in the world. If, for instance, uh, when I did a huge opportunity festival for secondary school students, I had to explain to people what I was trying to do and why it was so important to me so that I could gather other people who were super passionate about that um, so that we could actually make something happen. So to me, the story is about connecting with people mm. and, and also, you know, sort of broadcasting your intent so that you can gather people to you uh, with whom you can collaborate and make a difference. So presenting story... Very practical. <laughs> mm, so, so presenting story is a way of evoking empathy and ultimately arriving at connectivity, which then allows people to get on board or at least to understand and support 
the work that somebody might be doing in this new world? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's signaling. So if we're all in a much more networked world, then how do I find the people that I want to work with on specific projects? Mm-hmm. I need to, to know what their interests are. I need to know what their objective is. Um, I need to know the way that they work. And so we have to spend a lot more time articulating that to other people in a, in a more networked economy than we ever did if we were, you know, rung three on the 10-point ladder. Mm-hmm. Diana, what advice would you give to somebody, you know, mid-career or late career, uh, who may be listening to this and contemplating his or her own opportunities or risks associated with making a move? What are the things you would say to them in order to help build that confidence and faith in the possibility? I think start small and just do something. Just do something. And then develop a practice of evaluation. No, get started. So by starts, yeah, Mm. you know, really just... Get started, but by get started, I don't mean that, you know, you make uh, a huge change and burn the boats, uh, you know, on the beach. But the when I was starting to think about this, it was about what is it that I like about this, you know, this situation at work? What is it that I don't like? What are the changes I might like to make? And because I have such a background in innovation, it really is what small test can I, you know, can I take to see if my hypothesis is true that, you know, I want to spend more time writing or that maybe I want to go to a portfolio career or join a board? Well, what, you know, can I take a class to be a better board director and start having a network there? Um, Can I join a nonprofit board? That doesn't mean I'm going to spend, you know, six years on a listed company board, just just to get a sense of it. I think that those things are um, super important and that that builds up an agility muscle and uh, tight feedback loops and a sort of sense of reflection that allows people to go forward. And the first step is taken and it sort of breaks the taboo and then you go go on from there. And, and there is that, that possibility, particularly with corporate types of analysis paralysis, where overthinking something can make it even harder to just go and do, which is more of an entrepreneurial uh, you know, backbone. People who have that, that kind of startup fever, they don't sit around and talk about things. They test, 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 and then they refine and do it again. I think that's what you're, you're pointing to, isn't it? It's more kind of the, uh, the orientation or the attitude you have about work is as important as what you actually do. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't think that you can just change your attitude. I think you have to start experimenting and become more comfortable with it. And that is the mindset change that makes people more agile. And once they can identify that, and you know, if they want a coach to help them, or they have somebody who's in a similar place that they want to get together with and say, mm, thinking about this, I'm going to try it, we'll let you know how it goes. Um, then certainly, you know, that that's a great way to do it. Mm. Because I think that being around other people that are on the same journey is, is super helpful. And I find that, um, you know, when we talk about board experience, we do that. We, there's a learning log that people use um, to see how their behavior is changing and whether or not it's working. 
it's who's to say that any of your experiments are going to work i mean maybe a lot of them fail um, so I do have lots of things that are sort of hand-holding people, um, downloadable worksheets and the like uh, that people can can use to get to take that one small action. Mm. It gets them started, and hopefully, um, then the momentum kind of carries them through to to new insights. Yeah, it's like that period of contemplation and consideration. You know, thoughtful reflection on your world, what you do what you can offer, uh, and then then breaking out of the gates and seeing where it goes. It's a, it's a fabulous moment, and I think the world offers opportunities now that they never had before. The gig economy is here to stay. Uh, and, and we thank you for the, for the good, good work you're doing, Diana, I th- uh, for the book and for your thoughts. Uh, and we hope to uh, have more conversations, and we'll be checking in in the weeks to come. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Steve. There's big problems in the world to solve, so I'm hoping I can unlock some potential there. You've been listening to Diana Wu, author of Future Proof, Reinventing Work in the Age of Acceleration. This brings us to the wrap-up section of the podcast, the Asia Insider Minute, where I attempt to synthesize some of the conversation you've just heard and possibly add in a few questions and final thoughts of my own. Through her first-person investigations and range of insight, Diana begins unlocking solutions to some of the many career challenges facing white-collar workers and executives today. How to intercede on a career gone fallow or frenzied is the big question. Finding the time to step back or step off to contemplate the trajectory of one's professional career is a difficult thing to do, particularly in the face of ever-rising employer demands, a 24 by 7 timetable, and competitors all hopped up on globalization. A world, in effect, where everyone runs and no one sleeps. There's uncertainty, too. Disruption, you might say, is acceleration's strange bedfellow. Just at the moment when those late nights and stress-induced hours are about to pay off, along comes disruption. In other words, what feels like liftoff one day can come crashing down the next if leadership goes pear-shaped or operations falter. Getting sucker-punched by a lurking competitor can do the trick, too. If at one time it was enough to deliver on spec and go home for drinks and dinner, that's no longer the case. Without becoming too alarmist, the trifecta of heightened competition, shrinking executive tenure, and encroaching AI and automation point to a time when fighting for your job overshadows the doing of it. If I haven't sufficiently freaked you out by this point, consider this. The change found swirling about can either topple or transform you. Preparing for the coming storm is the important thing. If you are closer to the beginning of your career, try thinking laterally. Consider a so-called portfolio approach to your career with many smaller projects, some that interlink and others that offset one another. Also, prepare yourself for continual learning and upgrading. If you do these things when the market shifts, you'll be ready to shift with it. If you're later in your career and facing the prospect of retirement, cast your gaze to a more distant horizon and contemplate an extended third act. Some will be lucky enough to have tucked away savings sufficient to see them through, but most are now looking at work past the age of 62 and well into their 70s. If that sounds daunting or even depressing, change the way you think about it. With a quiver of honed skills and a gig economy landscape, it's simply a matter of applying what you know in new and exciting avenues to bring home the bacon. But like any adventure out into the void, you have to think, plan, and assume some degree of risk. Sound enticing? 
It's like the thrill of flying. Imagine yourself standing on a precipice with a newly minted pair of fully functional wings. Forget the fact that you've never flown before. How hard can it be? And just when you're about to take that leap, in comes doubt. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. What about my family, my reputation, my health? All worthwhile considerations. And let's be frank, not all of us are cut out for flying. Life's responsibilities tend to tether us to the ground. That speaks to the be prepared part. Taking the time to consider the risks, weigh your finances, measure the support you can expect from your partner or family, these are all legitimate steps in the art of preparation. Central to it all, however, is one's willingness to defer to the old maxim of know thyself. To get it right, doing the heavy lifting to unpack the mission of your heart's desire is the most essential step of all. That done, says Diana, future-proofing can be fun. Start experimenting. Try out small projects and lifestyle changes. See how it goes. Adjust and do it some more. Ditch the stuff that doesn't work for you and lean into the stuff that does. Most importantly, take the long view. Change doesn't happen overnight. In time, the path will sort itself out, the new landscape will emerge, and the bounty will yield a career reinvented and a life well lived. Now go do it. You'll be hearing from us on this topic in the weeks and months ahead. The future of work is a theme worthy of many an episode, and we encourage you to stay tuned. In the meantime, send us your thoughts, leave us a comment, download the episode, or better yet, reach us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. We promise to respond responsibly. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, come in from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com.